Coming up this evening on NTD Business, Amazon's stock tanking after its first quarterly loss in seven years. But is the worst yet to come? Profits soaring at major oil and gas companies. Is that good news or bad news for your energy bills? And Airbnb launching a huge incentive for its employees. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us this Friday evening. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. Earnings are out. Bad for some, very bad, but good for others. Apple saw its revenue grow 9% versus the same quarter last year, beating analyst expectations by several billion dollars. Its smartphone business grew 5%, suggesting iPhone 13 sales are going pretty good. Apple says the number of people switching from Android to Apple also grew significantly double digits. Were you one of them? But the future is more uncertain for the company. Much of Apple's operations are in China. It's predicting the lockdowns there could shave $8 billion off its revenue, especially in Shanghai. It's still where Apple's suppliers are, and it's still facing lockdowns. Chinese demand for products is also suffering as a result of the lockdowns. Apple announced it would buy back $90 billion of its stock today, but that couldn't save its share price from falling 3.5%. Over at Amazon, they wish they were only down 3.5%. Amazon stock falling 14% today after it posted its first quarterly loss in seven years, and it was a big one. Anthony Sean Marshall has more. Amazon reported a net loss of $3.8 billion, its first net loss in seven years. While revenues were up, its operating expenses rose in every category, even as a percentage of revenue. The cost to ship in overseas containers more than doubled compared to pre-pandemic rates. And the cost of fuel is approximately one and a half times higher than it was even a year ago. The loss was partially a result of worldwide inflation, supply chain problems, less online shopping, and Rivian. Amazon owns 18% of Rivian, which has been performed poorly recently. I wouldn't say it's red alert yet, but I would say it's it's yellow alert. Phil Masiello is founder of Uplift Fluoride, an Amazon seller who helps other sellers with their brands. Masiello says he and other sellers have never experienced this before. We have to figure out what this is going to look like in a year. Are, are some of these changes temporary? Are some of them long-term? Are some of them short-term? Do we have to rethink our business model? The company had a 3% drop in net online store sales, a 17% increase in physical store sales and slowing down in third-party seller services and subscription services. Amazon in particular is readjusting, it's resizing its capacity, resizing its labor force. Santosh Rao is head of research at Manhattan Venture Partners. Rao says Amazon's performance is a mixed bag and its growth drivers are fine. Numbers were worse than expected and that caught everyone by surprise. Uh, but uh, Overall, I think these are bellwether stocks. They will come back. They will do well down the road. Amazon chief executive Andy Jassy says the pandemic and subsequent war in Ukraine have brought unusual growth and challenges and that our teams are squarely focused on improving productivity and cost efficiency. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Things were rosier, much rosier over at America's oil giants. Chevron today posting its highest quarterly profit in 10 years. Surging oil and gas prices, boosting profits for oil majors worldwide. Chevron CEO says it's now looking to invest more in natural gas on rising world demand. LNG is on everybody's mind these days. Uh, it's important to uh, you know, meeting Europe's needs. It's important to delivering a lower carbon energy system globally. 
and we see this uh, strong market here in the near term. Worth says Chevron was discussing new liquefied natural gas investments in the U.S. Gulf and expanding its LNG project in Israel. The United States is the world's largest LNG exporter. Now, the Biden administration has been scrambling to boost supply to Europe as Russia threatens to cut supply to the bloc over the conflict in Ukraine. Another oil giant, Exxon, doubled its first quarter profit, but the results fell short of Wall Street estimates. It wrote down more than $3 billion on its withdrawal from Russia. So with us now is Tom McNulty, president of TJ McNulty & Co. Tom, great to see you. Always good to see you. Tom, big profits for oil companies. Are these companies price gouging like we've been hearing? No, I, 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 I'm, I'm fairly certain that's not the case. And I think uh, there may be investigations and they generally don't don't lead to anything. It's a commodity business. Uh, Exxon has always said it's a price taker. Chevron is as well. It's a global commodity business. And, you know, I, I really don't even think mechanically it's possible for them to do that. These these accusations usually pop up when uh, uh, fuel refined products, gas prices, rise but it's it's it is it's very market driven because if they're selling their oil and gas at this price it means there's somebody in the world willing to pay them for it right yeah and it, i mean these are two integrated large integrated companies so they have multiple businesses including downstream refined products where you see gasoline diesel jet fuel so um, i think that you know the the input prices are very high You're, you can sell oil and gas at high prices but then the users have to pay those prices and turn those commodities into into fuels or use uh, gas, for example, uh, for power. So it, it, it's kind of a long, complex value chain. Yeah. Chevron says it's going to invest some of its profits back into natural gas production or exploration, whatever. Do, do you feel these profits are going to be beneficial for the customer in the long run? Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think that, uh, you know, the earnings numbers are accounting numbers, as you know, they're, they're gap numbers. The free cash flow numbers were gigantic. I mean, Exxon was over $12 billion, Chevron, and then I know it's not an American company, but Total has a large presence here, each over $6 billion. If you think about the magnitude of that money, that's actual cash. There's a lot that can be done with it. They're, they do different things. There's there's a chunk of it going into share repurchases and dividends, so that's returning capital to investors, and then also investing in old and new energy. What uh, the Chevron CEO said, talking about natural gas, as you've heard me say before, natural gas really is, is at the intersection of old and new energy. It's an upstream fossil fuel, but it's essential for the energy transition. We know Europe desperately needs it. Asia needs it as well, or Asia will use coal. So I think the emphasis on natural gas is smart and expected, and it makes sense. So what's this cash flow telling you about the economy or, or the, the energy sector? Well, again, there, you know, we, we know that, that, that oil and gas prices have been high, so I think there have been expectations that uh, the companies that, that produce and sell those commodities would have had uh, outsized earnings. I think the actual gap numbers were slightly below most of the Wall Street estimates, but that's a little messy. There are a lot of write-downs and non-cash numbers in there. The healthy cash flow makes sense, not just because of commodity prices, because of the downturn several years ago in the energy markets. These companies have become very, very good at being efficient. 
technology, efficiencies. They're just they're good at what they do. And so there has there has been a lot of cost management. So I think that it's it's not just the commodity prices, but it's also to a large degree how how they're run. And next week, a lot of the more independent shale players will be announcing earnings and they're going to be healthy and robust as well. Got about 30 seconds, Tom. War is still happening in, in Ukraine. Where do you see prices going, gas prices? Yeah, I think I, I think I think the challenge the world sees is that the war to some degree is being funded by Europe, China, and India because they're buying Russian energy commodities and other commodities. So cash is flowing into Russia. If that were cut off by any means or, or political or otherwise, you know, Russia could uh, run into financial trouble very quickly and may have to sue for peace. So it comes down to how is that dynamic managed? And if the war were to end or have a ceasefire, I think prices would fall. But if it drags on, they'd probably linger where they are. It's very binary. Tom McNulty, have a great weekend. Thank you, Tom. You too. Great to see you. Thank you. Were you hoping inflation had peaked? Well, I've got bad news for you. Not only did PCE inflation not peak in February, it was even higher in March, hitting 6.6% annually, a 40-year high. It doesn't seem to be slowing down either. Month over month, it surged by the most since 2005, 0.9% in a single month. Food and energy, the most basic essentials, rising faster than other prices. The Fed is now tipped to raise interest rates even faster to fight inflation, possibly doubling its current planned rate. But many worry that could slow the U.S. into a recession. GDP growth fell in the first quarter, even without any major tightening. As Brian Dmitrovic, economic historian and Richard S. Strong scholar at the Laffer Center, what rising rates mean for Americans. Well, I think mortgage rates are going to go up no matter what. So kind of the fad of buying houses, which really got going in 2020, uh, might cool a little bit. And housing is not a bullish sign for the economy. I mean, if people are putting all sorts of money in housing. They're not putting all sorts of money into investment in new goods and services. So uh, there could be an asset portfolio shift back into regular investments. But I still see a high price of gold, and I see crypto that's not going down precipitously. So I think the, there's still a lot of question about whether or not this economy is going to churn out a lot of profits in the future. The financial system is much bigger now. We're talking about people putting their money into maybe non-productive assets, stocks or gold or, or whatever, versus into goods and services. Could that make a recovery this time even slower? Yeah, Paul, you, you put your finger on it. Uh, the financial system is a lot bigger than it was in 1971 when the United States went off the gold standard. The financial system has grown 10 percent per year since 1971 because there is such an interest in hedging the currency and hedging fiscal and monetary policy. Back when we had a classical monetary system, gold and fixed exchange rates, the financial industry was perhaps a third or a quarter of the size it is now. Now there's so much worry about how do you save money when in a depreciating environment, and that's a complete subtraction from real GDP. That, exactly. That's a drag on the economy, really, right? It's really kind of junk GDP. We had 3% as finance of GDP in 1969. Today we have, what, 13%? And what have we gotten for it? I mean, we've got no better growth rates uh, than in the great eras of the past of 4%, 5% per year. 
what that represents is when you don't have money that holds its value over the years, you have to allocate a very large amount of your economic activity towards hedging the dollar and hedging taxation. And that's what we're stuck with with finance is 13%. What is the solution to this? Because even the man of the moment, Elon Musk, said a lot of the smartest people are going into finance for this reason. Well, that's a bad sign. I mean, when you don't have the next Elon Musk going to Silicon Valley and going into the real goods and services section of the economy, then there's no reason to be bullish. Um, I think the electorate is usually uh, the wisest on this score. Americans love their American dream. They don't like paying a fortune for regular health care. They don't like paying a fortune just to save money. They don't like taking out student loans. I think all those areas of junk GDP are probably going to have to be curtailed over the next 10, 20 years. And I think the electorate will demand it. So I think we'll, we'll end up seeing political reform in the next election cycles. And we have a chance, therefore, of repeating uh, the success of the 80s and the 90s. That's one to watch. Brian Dimitrovic, Laffer Center. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And some lighter news, finally. Snap has released a flying camera for the Snapchat app. It'll let you snap hands-free videos and photos. The pocket-sized companion uses no remote. Just tap a button, it'll take off and land in your hand. Take a look at this. Using preset paths, the pixie can float, reveal, orbit, or follow your lead. Snap, which officially labels itself a camera company, doesn't want to call this a drone, possibly to get past laws and FCC flight regulations that come along with drone usage. We contacted Snap about that, but they didn't get back to us just yet. For about $230, the Pixie is now available from Snap's website. And the biggest home-sharing platform in the world is making a bold statement in the battle between working at the office versus working from home. Airbnb announced its workers can now live and work from anywhere in the world. Anthony's Phil Zoe reports. Airbnb says its workers can now live and work from anywhere in up to 170 countries. Part of this for them is they want people working remotely. They want people getting Airbnbs and going away for a week to uh, vacation and work. <laughs> um, so for them, it fits very well. Airbnb's CEO says the staff's salary won't change even when they move and workers can stay at each location for up to 90 days. I think, I think the most interesting thing, to be honest, is probably that it is actually Airbnb doing that. Jill Berteau is the CEO of video conferencing firm Livestorm, which can accommodate online meetings for anywhere from three to 10,000 people. He says there needs to be a balance in all that we do. Like everything in life, you need to have balance. And I think for remote works, it's exactly the same. You cannot be on one extreme or the other on the spectrum. You should have to find the right balance. Airbnb said the most meaningful relationships are made in person, however. Most of its staff will still have in-person team meetings once every quarter. Berto agrees. You're never going to match the level of interaction or the level of proximity you can have when you meet someone face to face and spend an hour or spend a day and talk and not even just about work just deepening like the, the, the relationship. Airbnb says it just had its most productive two-year period in the company's history all while working remotely. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Now, Wall Street finished sharply lower today. A big Amazon drop dragging down the Nasdaq. It fell 537 points, four and two tenths of percent bad end to the week.
Other two major indexes not so good either. The Dow lost 939 points, 2 and 8 tenths of a percent. S&P dropped 156 points, 3 and 6 tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq has lost around 13 percent in April, the worst monthly performance since the global financial crisis in 2008. Elon Musk, man of the moment, as I said, sold a bunch of Tesla stock this week to finance part of his Twitter takeover bid, apparently. According to an SEC filing, Musk sold about $8.5 billion worth of his Tesla shares between Tuesday and Thursday. It's about 9 million shares at about $900 per share. The sales amount to only about 5.6% of Tesla's stock he had outright Tuesday morning, though. But it was big enough to sink the company's stock price. Filings don't say why he sold them specifically, but it appears he's raising funds to buy Twitter. On Thursday night, Musk tweeted, no more further Tesla sales planned after today. (laughs) Shareholders will be happy. If you own any crypto, you might want to consider moving to Panama soon. The country just passed a bill that would exempt cryptocurrency from capital gains taxes. The bill's sponsor says crypto won't become legal tender there, but people should be able to use it as a means for payment or any transaction. The bill still needs to be signed by the president in order to become law, but in the U.S., U- U.S. profits on Bitcoin sales are taxed up to 20%, zero in Panama. And Peruvian police entered a Chinese-owned copper mine Thursday to evict an indigenous community. The group had established a camp near the open pit, forcing the mine to halt operations. Today's Andrew Thomas has the details. 700 indigenous people were evicted from Peru's largest Chinese-owned copper mine Thursday. The people were camping at the Las Pambas mine for 14 days. They were protesting alleged breaches by the Chinese state-owned Min Metals through its subsidiary, MMG Limited. We've been surprised by the mining company forces, their contractors, their criminals they hired. But this stays here. Las Bambas stays here. We regret this situation for these indigenous farmers. More than a thousand riot police fired tear gas canisters at the demonstrators. The protesters responded by throwing rocks at police. The mine bought the territory from the Fuera Bamba community. But the indigenous demonstrators allege that the company is not fulfilling its commitment to give them 440 acres of land. We have the willingness to talk. We have the willingness to install solutions. I think we wait for the indicated day as mentioned in our minutes, and we wait for that. In the meantime, our position continues until that date. The eviction shows a shift in the tactics of Pedro Castillo's government, which had refrained from using force in previous months. The government early on limited freedom of assembly and protests for 30 days in the area. Peru is the world's second largest copper producer after Chile. Most exports of the metal go to China. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Incredible. And the recent Hollywood movie Uncharted is causing geopolitical tension. The film starring Tom Holland is now banned in the Philippines after it showed a disputed map of the South China Sea apparently favoring the Chinese Communist Party. Anthony Don Ma has the details. So what happened? In the movie, there's a two-second scene that echoes Beijing's territorial claims in the South China Sea. Here's the scene. What you just saw is China's nine-dash line in the South China Sea. The series of lines encompasses 90% of the area. 
and China claims everything inside the lines is their territory. But the Philippines say the map encroaches on their territory, so they are banning the movie. Movie producer Chris Fedden says the film should have just avoided showing it. I mean, why even have that map on camera? Uh, why even allude to it? Um, it's something that could easily have been reframed and uh, reframed in some other sort of dialogue or uh, choice of visuals um, to essentially make the same exact plot point. Despite Beijing's claims, the international tribunal ruled in 2016 that China's Nine Dash Line has no legal basis. Countries like the U.S., Vietnam, and Malaysia also dispute China's claims. For Fenton, there is little benefit for the movie to include such a controversial map. I don't see what the upside would be. I don't think it would have translated to bigger box office in China. In fact, the movie itself didn't perform all that well in China. So I don't see what the end game was in regards to doing it purposely. The Philippines Foreign Ministry says the scene infringes on their national interest and has pulled the movie from theaters. The controversial map may or may not have been included on purpose in the movie to please Beijing for the Chinese movie market. But this idea of pleasing China is not unheard of in Hollywood. An upcoming major Hollywood blockbuster, Top Gun Maverick, starring Tom Cruise, is an example. And in that Top Gun film, Taiwan, the flag of Taiwan on the flight jacket of Tom Cruise has been erased from the film. The Chinese government did not want Taiwan seen in that kind of light around the world in a major box office um, film like Top Gun. And Paramount, the studio, relented and essentially took it out of the shot. The reason why Hollywood studios do these things is for the Chinese movie market. But Fenton tells me what suffers is creative freedom. Though he says capitalism and freedom of expression can coexist, and he would like to see that in Hollywood. Don Ma, NTD News. And still to come, stay with us. Fried chicken woes in South Korea. What are they going to do about rising prices for cooking oil? And the new twist on cereal, this breakfast of champions, is made for something other than milk. That and more coming up on NTD Business. At one fried chicken diner in Seoul, South Korea, the fryer is always full of hot oil. But Indonesia's cooking oil export ban is raising concerns. Jason Albano reports. Fried chicken is facing a palm oil squeeze in South Korea. Kang Jung-ah's fried chicken diner in Seoul is cheap and cheerful. The classic combo Koreans call chimik, fried chicken and mekju, or beer. An essential ingredient in her kitchen, hot oil, to fry things up. But South Korea imports more than half its palm oil from Indonesia, a country that just banned palm oil exports. That's bad news for fried chicken. The prices of all cooking oil have shot up. 
The price of a 4.8-gallon tin of edible oil in South Korea has doubled from this time last year to roughly $40 and could go higher. Kang fears very soon she'll have no choice but to raise prices and risk losing customers. I've been struggling to survive, but now labor costs and everything have gone up. And if oil prices increase further, we won't have any choice but to raise prices. If we reuse the same oil for two weeks instead of a week like we used to, due to the high oil prices, the fried chicken wouldn't taste good. Once the taste changes, the customers won't come again. It's not just small shops. The big names are also taking a hit. One of the country's largest fried chicken chains, Genesis BBQ, announced it will be raising the price of most items on its menu by 10% after similar moves by its rival chains, Kyochan and BHC. That could potentially speed up price hikes at smaller food chains. It may be enough to cause loyal Chimic customers to cut back. I order fried chicken once or twice a month. But if its prices go up due to the hike in oil prices, I don't think I will eat it that often, except on special occasions, like this with my friends. The price impact of the palm oil squeeze won't be limited to chicken. A wide array of goods use palm oil, from croissants to cosmetics. The latest pain highlights a growing problem for Asia's fourth largest economy, where policymakers are wary of the current cost-push inflation already at a decade high. Some South Koreans are already considering alternative ways of getting their fix. If it really goes up to that level, it might be better to raise a rooster, press your own oil at home, and cook it myself or something. And the breakfast of champions, a big bowl of cereal filled with orange juice. Wait, what? Tropicana is making it happen with Tropicana Crunch? It's a cereal specifically intended to mix with orange juice instead of milk. This granola chock full of honey almond clusters just waiting to meet up with OJ in your cereal bowl. Get on Tropicana's website and the Tropicana folks will also be giving away free boxes on May 4th, National Orange Juice Day. What do you think? So latest in the NTD business team, myself, Paul Graney. Can still catch NTD evening news with Stephanie Cox. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. A lot happening there these days, I hear. For Entity Business, it's all for this week. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.